People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, and we have a most exciting guest in the studio, the author of An Elephant in My Kitchen, Francoise Malbiantini, the French-born but South African founder of so many things in the Tula Tula Game Reserve. Her husband, her late husband, Lawrence Anthony, was the famous Elephant Whisperer, and his book, The Elephant Whisperer, is the prequel to Francoise's book, An Elephant in My Kitchen. I think your reputation precedes you. We all know about you here in Johannesburg. I don't want to give a, a living eulogy. So I'm going to ask you the first question. Well, first of all, welcome to High FM Studios. Thank you so much, Steve. It is such, a, a, such, a, such an honor to have you here. Thank uh, you. But I'm going to ask you the first question, which I ask everyone who sits in that seat. Please okay. introduce yourself in your own words and on your own terms. Okay, my name is Françoise, Françoise Balbiantoni. Um, I've been living in South Africa now for 31 years. I live in the bush in Zululand. I moved there 20 years ago. And uh, I'm living an amazing adventure every single day. You put that adventure across in your book very, very well. You, you've been living in South Africa for 30, 31 years. Yes, 30 years. From Paris to Tula Tula and KwaZulu-Natal, how did you adapt to the changes? What did you bring from Paris to the bush? And how has the bush changed the Parisian? Okay. Um, well, to move from Paris to South Africa first, we start, I start, we started 10 years in Durban, uh, to accustom myself to smaller city. Uh, then we moved to Tula Tula 20 years ago. My late husband told me, uh, we're going to go and live in the middle of the bush in Zululand for a magnificent conservation project for nature and wildlife, which will be as well a community project. And uh, I followed him in this, what appeared to be a very challenging uh, adventure. I, I, I didn't have much clue what to be expected, but, uh, you know, if you love adventure, just go forward. And um, what I brought from Paris, I think, uh, when we built a lodge, what I brought from Paris is uh, French cuisine. French cuisine that we serve to our guests at the Safari Lodge. How do you bring French cuisine to a Safari Lodge? What's on the menu? Well, we've got all sorts of... Well, it's actually French creations uh, adapted to the product we get in Zululand, in the middle of the bush, and uh, as well uh, adapted to the... It had, it had to be adapted to the South African taste as well. Because at the beginning, I was making the tiny little portion like we do in France. And uh, the Zulander were not very happy with that. So I've had to adjust. And I must say, after 20 years now, I've trained my chefs, all coming from the local village, uh, of Bukanana, Tambanana. And um, they do an amazing work. I mean, the people come... To, to, to the safari lodge, they cannot believe the food they're getting. Very focused dinner, three-course lunch, amazingly created breakfast. And anyway, say, they love it. So this is what I brought. And, and what has the bush brought to you? Ah, the bush, what it brought to me, an, an understanding that, and a reconnect, uh, an understanding about 
uh, nature, understanding about wildlife conservation. I had no idea before. Uh, I was always a city girl. And I will say that example that like when I arrived at, to live at Tula Tula, there was, was busy cooking rice in the kitchen. And suddenly I saw a little mouse falling onto my stove, followed by a snake, which ate that poor little mouse. And that was my, one of my first encounter with wildlife. I really had never seen a snake in my life. And after that, we had the elephants arriving, the elephants escaping. So I knew it was going to be an adventure at every corner, but to that extent, that was really uh, above my imagination. So, but what it brought to me is the understanding that in nature we all in it together. Uh, we're all part of nature, animal, humans. And I understood as well that I think we're we all too disconnected from nature, I think, the big cities, and uh, that need uh, more awareness about the, the necessity, for example, of, of, of uh, saving water. Saving water. It's not only, in, you know, they discovered that in the bush, but years ago, before the cities, realized no water, no life. Um, for humans and animals, we're all in it together. I want to ask you, because you've been in the bush now for 20 years and you've headed up the Tula Tula Nature Reserve for the last few years, what are the great challenges, what are some of the great challenges facing South African wildlife? Of course, the poaching. Poaching is one of the biggest challenges. And we fight it every day. You know, we've had a terrible tragedy last year uh, with our orphanage being attacked by poachers. Uh, but we've got alerts on a regular basis, we've got poachers on a regular basis, but now, unfortunately, it's a war. Whether you've got two categories of poachers, you've got the one doing it for meat and the one doing it for greed. The one, the second one are very dangerous. It's for the rhinos. Uh, we've lost rhinos, of course, to poachers. So we're fighting back. Uh, we've increased our security measures to an incredible uh, stage. Um, we've put cameras all around the game reserve. Uh, we've got uh, a top-notch uh, anti-poaching uh, um, team patrolling day and night. We've got security. I mean, we've got dogs. We've got drones. Uh, we've dehorning our rhinos. We put GPS satellite colors. They guard it 24 hours a day. It's, uh, what else can we do? We, we really fight with violence. We fight with um, um, being prepared, which means uh, trying to stop the poachers with the dehorning of our rhinos and all that, which we're doing. Their prevention, sorry, prevention. Uh, we fight with violence when needed. And we're working at education as the key to conservation and education being um, a source of information to help uh, bring in more awareness about the plight of poachers, um, of poaching, because... So we've created the Tula Tula Volunteers Academy, at, uh, which is uh, to educate and inspire, and as well um, to help people to reconnect reconnect with nature as well and to get a better understanding of conservation efforts and conservation awareness. We work very closely with the local communities. Uh, we get volunteers uh, 
for free from the local communities who come and spend two weeks uh, at the Tula Tula Volunteers Academy to learn about the dangers and the consequences of poachers, poaching for future generations. Because if poaching carries on like that, there won't be any more wildlife. So we must try to teach them the vision, the same time as the passion for conservation. Also, this, this book that you've just published now and you're launching is an important shot in the war against poaching. Us city livers, we don't really know what's happening in the countryside. We read the, we hear the odd thing in the news and the radio. We might read an article in the newspaper, but an isolated news item on, you know, on the radio or in the newspaper doesn't bring it home to, you know, doesn't enter into our hearts. But reading the attack on the orphanage in your book it makes it so real to, to people across, not just South Africa, because this book's going to go all around the world. And you, you, you will raise the, the profile of the dangers that all animals face Currently, even in protected nature reserves, like Tula Tula, it's protected. Yeah. But there's still terrible, terrible dangers that face these animals. Yeah, exactly. At the same time, uh, uh, rhino poaching or elephant poaching is organized crime. Uh, they're using technology. They're using powered uh, um, weapons. Uh, so we have to be really more and more uh, aware of that and... We have to fight against that. It's, a, it's like a war. You, you do have some interesting modern solutions to some problems of success on your farm. In the, uh, or not in your farm, on your reserve, when there were too many elephants. The, the government said to you that the ratio of elephants to your, your land, your yeah. land yes. was tipping into the, 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 the ratio that's not going to be able to support elephant populations for much longer. So then you had to either extend the reserve or you had to get rid of elephants. But you came up with a novel solution. Yes, it's uh, the contraception. Contraception of the male elephants. So we've been doing the contraception for quite a few years now, and uh, we are doing the expansion of Tula Tula very soon. Uh, it's been agreed by the local community who share the same vision as us for conservation. Uh, so we're going to increase 3,500 hectares. Very soon, we're just waiting for the kind of a paperwork. We're just having a business plan put together with an agreement that we shall sign with the local communities. Um, so all this is into place now. So it is going to go ahead. We shall be soon. Uh, uh, we have 4,500 hectares. You know, we started 1,500 hectares 20 years ago. Slowly, we grew with more community land and with more private land. And now we are at 4,500 uh, we've reached maximum capacity for our herd of elephants. We've got 29. They've been on contraception for a few years now. The last baby, we got him two years ago. And um, so, you know, but, uh, to, 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 to elephant family structure necessitates to have babies, you know, for their whole um, um, balance and for their own structure, family structure. So we'll have to stop the contraception very soon and um, hopefully by mid next year the fencing will be done and we shall be about 8,000 hectares with extra land as well private land we shall be about 9,000 hectares 
So that you'll be able to support a, a, a much bigger elephant population. We shall be able to support a much bigger elephant population, yes. We are in conversation with Francoise Malby Anthony, the author of An Elephant in My Kitchen. We'll be back straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back to People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. It's a great, great, great opportunity for anyone who loves nature, anyone who likes the bush, anyone who's passionate about animal conservation, keeping all the animals that we have alive today in existence for future generations. Because we're talking to Francoise Malby Anthony, the author of An Elephant in My Kitchen, her passion for conservation, her passion for South African wildlife, or for, I suppose, all wildlife. And this brings me to something else that touches every single person who reads the book's heart. You have some unbelievable relationships with wild animals. Before we get to the actual relationships, because it's very rare that we have the opportunity to speak to a person who's got so many relationships with animals. Can you give a few, a few thoughts on human-animal relationships? How would animals, how do wild animals differ from pets? Because you've got lots of pets. You've got lots of pets, do- pet dogs as well. So you've got pet dogs, you've got all these wild animals out there in Tula Tula. And how do these relationships affect you? The relationships are amazing. You know, our elephants, they all got names. All our animals have got names. Even our hippos, Romeo and Juliet, with their children, Chomp and Chocolat. <laughs> we've got the 29 elephants. Each one of, uh, has got, we've got the elephant family tree. They were their names, their birth date, and their ID. They all got their ID card with their own characteristic. You know, animals are not different from humans. They, they're all different. Each one of them, uh, our rangers have got that ability. They can recognize each elephant, you know, uh, uh, by their characteristic, by their behavior. And they just, I mean... They've got an amazing behavior, and they really get into your soul. The, 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 those elephants. Same with our rhinos. We got two rhinos, Tabo and Tom. They were little orphans when they arrived. This is why it actually prompt the idea of creating a rhino orphanage in those days, because we got them in two thousand and nine. Uh, they, they were brought up at the lodge, so we would have liked a proper orphanage in those days. Um, but uh, those two rhinos are almost ten years old now, guarded by. Uh, so they're used to humans, okay, but they're still wild. They're wild. Uh, you know, uh, uh, wild elephants will always be wild. Whether it's wild when he was found at one day old, then he grows up to two-ton rhino, he still is wild, I promise you. And our elephants are the same. They look very friendly like this. They they are... Uh, people leave Tula Tula, they tell me, we've never had an experience like we've had at Tula Tula with the elephants. They really get into your soul. People uh, leave Tula Tula, they, they feel changed. They feel uh, their life has changed. So it's, it's beautiful to hear because uh, they, that's just, they tell me that with an amazing emotion. So you see this relationship made very quickly with your, the, the visitors to Tula Tula. You see the relationship with the wild animals happening in front of your eyes. Exactly. But you've, you've had it for 20 years. That's right. Yes, that's right. Uh, and so after 20 years, some of the actual relationships, some of the specific animal characters, these are personalities. These, as you said, they all have their own personality. So some of your relationships with some of these special animals. 
Well, the main one is uh, uh, Frankie. Frankie uh, is a matriarch. Frankie, um, uh, as I put in the book, I thought she didn't like me. I thought every time, every time, you know, she's the one who attacked us, Lawrence and I, when we were on the four-wheeler motorbike. And uh, uh, since that day, I was terrified to meet Frankie because I've seen her, the anger in her eyes. Yeah, and that was at the beginning. That was. 18, 18, 18 years ago. And now, Frankie, she's my new best friend. She comes to my garden. She comes and says hello. She, she's not allowed to come in my garden. This is not her territory. But she thinks she owns my garden. She owns my house. She like, I don't know if she's heard that there's a book. Then I write a lot about her in that book. And I don't know. But we don't know. Those elephants, they are, you know, they've got behaviors. And uh, which are out of the ordinary, and and that no scientific explanation. So it's extraordinary. It kept coming up in the book that they would know certain dates and they would know certain things about the humans in their lives. That there was, as you said, there's no scientific explanation how they could know these things, and then they come to your house to show solidarity with you. Exactly, and to show their respect to when Lawrence passed away. Three years on a row. This is extraordinary. Same day, same time, three years on a row. Two days after Lawrence passed, they came back. They all heard like a procession. It's extraordinary. That's, this is, uh, this is, we're talking about the, the, the unbelievable relationships that Francois Malby Anthony has had with some of the animals, especially the elephants in Tula Tula. The, you keep acknowledging through the book that your successes are not just yours alone, but they're the result of a collective effort involving many people. And I think that's a sign of a wonderful leader that they can, sh- they can share the success and they can ascribe everyone's contribution. And it, 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 it makes everything that you do just seem so much, your humility comes through the book the whole time. And uh, as a reader, we get even in greater respect for you. That everything that's happening there, you, you're thanking the rangers through your writing. You're thanking the community. You're thanking this family from Denmark that comes back to your lodge all the time. And it's a collective group. And you even use the phrase, if it takes a village to raise an, you know, a child and it takes a whole, you know, a collective to raise a, 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 an orphan rhino. Who are some of the people, these people who, who have accompanied you in your journey at Tula Tula? Well, we've, uh, uh, there are a few because um, uh, um, I'm very lucky to have uh, very loyal staff uh, who stood by me as well after Lawrence passed away. But I mean, we've got, uh, I've got, uh, uh, I don't want to forget anyone, so I don't know if I can name anybody. But, uh, you know, like I had some of my rangers who came, as I call them, the big stars of uh, in the book, uh, some of the big stars in the book. There's uh, uh, my game ranger, uh, uh, Victor, Promise. Uh, uh, Sia uh, uh, and Vuzi, uh, game reserve manager, who used to be the right arm of Lawrence. And uh, I've got my ladies as well. There was uh, my bonus manageress of the lodge who started when she was 18 years old. That was from the beginning uh, uh, at, of Tula Tula, where she started 18 years ago. When the lodge was open, I've got Cindy. You know, and 
every single one of, one of them, I mean, they all got the same passion for the wildlife. And, of course, there is Tom, Tom, my chef at the Safari Lodge, who cooks the most amazing French cuisine, who is the one who said that little baby elephant will land in my kitchen. And that was really beautiful. When you think as, as that passion is contagious, because you work in a kitchen, you're not supposed to be involved in anything to do with the bush. You think some people would say that's not, nothing to do with me. I'm not interested. No, she found a little elephant in the garden, which was wandering and lost. She came to knock at my window and she said, let's go. We must go. Thanks to her, that little baby elephant was saved. Otherwise, that baby elephant would have died. And that's why I called that baby elephant Tom. One week old baby elephant would have never survived in the 400,000 hectares. Tom, so we've got baby Tom as an elephant. Now she's four years old, saved thanks to my chef. So my team, my team, I've got, I employ uh, 60 people and uh, everybody's on a set and everybody shares the same passion and vision. This is what's so important. It's, it, 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 it really, it's a, you can feel that collective throughout the book. And you also mentioned earlier on that you're including the entire community in the Tula Tula area. So these people might have just gone off to the big cities and found jobs in, you know, in industry or in offices. But now they, they, they back on the land looking after as custodians of the wildlife of the country for the next generation. So you, you need, you've pulled the community in yes. as well, and, yes. and, and you've given them that passion for the, for the, for the wildlife. Absolutely, absolutely. In the book, you've got a few incidences where you, you like with Frankie when you were on the, the, yeah, the four-wheeler. Like, four were there any other events in the bush that were very, very frightening? Uh, wow. Oh gosh. No, that one was one of the, that one was one of the most terrifying because, uh, Lawrence being always a very positive and optimistic person, there was never any problem, whatever. Uh, when Lawrence told me, when Frankie was right on top of us, about to kill us, uh, Lawrence said, we've got a problem. And I just closed my eyes and said, think, okay, bye bye. <laughs> you know, we all, we all going to die. I think that was one of the, the worst one. Um, we, we've got moments of fear. Well, L L Lawrence we got attacked by Numzan. Um, me, I'm just being very careful. I, do, I try not to uh, meet the herd when I drive uh, down the lodge at night because I don't see them, number one, and number two, because I don't want to meet them at night. Uh, during the day, it's okay. But, but I mean, you, you have to be a bit careful. You live in... in, in in the land of wide life. And us humans, we are just there to protect them and to help them to survive and to uh, uh, have guests to show them what we do and to bring awareness to the conservation efforts and the necessity to to, 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 to protect wildlife. Anyway, this is what we do. Um, so... Uh, our rangers, our rangers have been uh, in certain situations as well, which are quite scary. But I mean, in I was in twenty years. Yes, I've had, I've had some, a lot of adventures. We are in conversation with Francoise Melby Anthony, the author of An Elephant in My Kitchen. She really is a larger than life personality here in the studio, sharing the same space with her. I'm in awe of your story, your life story, your journey. We'll be back with more conversation straight after this ad break. 
People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Such an exciting interview. We are in conversation with Francoise Malby Anthony, the author of An Elephant in My Kitchen and the the one of the two founders of the Tula Tula Nature Reserve, together with her late husband, Lawrence Anthony, who was the author of The Elephant Whisperer, amongst other books as well. So now we've got the sequel. This is Francoise Melby Anthony's book, and it's the continuation of the passion and the drive and the push for nature conservation. I want to ask you a dream question. If you were allowed to change the world in any ways, any ways, not one way, any ways possible to further nature conservation, what would you do? If we had to change, if I had to... You could, you, could, you could play God. You can change the world. <laughs> what would you do for nature conservation? That's a dream question. Yeah, well, yeah, if you, <laughs> in your dreams, this is what you want to happen. Uh, well, you know what, what would be nice is to have some help from the government, maybe, a little bit more help, because conserve, nature, conserve, nature and wildlife conservation is part of South Africa future uh, for the future generation I think there should be more awareness uh, put up in that direction um, more uh, uh, I, I wouldn't say more funds necessarily but more help uh, just to help with help us fighting uh, poaching I, I think that would be a big start um, and to help with the local communities as well, to help us to bring more awareness there as well. Um, I think that Which there's a lot to do. There's so much to do. Is well to there, but helping us with educational uh, uh, um, program, but to have more support. Let's say this is the way I would see more, more support from the government. Would you like to pass a law in China and Vietnam that trade in people will get very stiff sentences for trade in rhino horns, elephant tusks? A law to do what? <laughs> a law in China and Vietnam yes. to prosecute people trading in, to actually punish people trading in rhino horns. Or to run a massive campaign showing that it's just the same material that makes your fingernails. Sorry. <laughs> Well, you know what? This is something we do all the time. We, sp- we spend our time trying to bring awareness. Uh, there are organizations working in China, like Wild AIDS, doing an amazing work to bring awareness with celebrities, putting advertisements. Because, you know, I believe that there has been a survey where 70% of the Chinese population does not know that rhinos and elephants have got to be killed to have their horns removed or their tusk removed, uh, they think they just shed their uh, horn. Or, or their, so there is a huge, um, it's a huge um, awareness campaign to do there. Uh, but there's a, a, a big awareness as well to do in South Africa, as well, to 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 to, to put the whole thing into perspective, uh, with a vision of uh, South Africa with um, increasing wildlife. Uh, rather than diminishing wildlife. These are the big challenges. Now, next year is an election year, so any politicians listening, you've heard someone in nature conservation. We would like to see some environmental regulations 
on or some environmental proposals on election manifestos. We'd like to see the government or political parties taking the environment and the conservation of wildlife seriously and putting that to the voters for the next election because ultimately South Africa is known for its wildlife and if we don't look after it, we're not going to have it in the future generations. Then are there any new projects at Tula Tula or are there any new projects at Tula Tula? Anything exciting that is, well, you've mentioned a few, but yes. that's going to be coming soon in the future. The expansion. The expansion, well, that's huge. That's, that's huge. You know, that's good. That's a big project. That's a further 35 kilometers of electric fencing, mm, 3,500 hectares to be, uh, um, organized with roads and, uh, anyway, there's a lot to do. How many how many visitors can you accommodate at Tula Tula? At the moment, okay, we've got at the lodge we can accommodate fourteen, fourteen guests, and at the tented camp, which is family friendly, uh, we can accommodate twenty guests. Are there waiting lists to get into Tula Tula? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you planning on increasing the number of people that you can bring to Tula Tula? We'll see. We'll see that. It's part of the next project. We, we first do the expansion and then, uh, uh, because it's a community project, uh, we have to, um, uh, do a proposal as well so that the local community benefit, of course, uh, from this expansion. So, because it's got to be mutually beneficial. Like everything, uh, we do it. Everything must be a win-win, mutual beneficial, uh, uh, project. So we're working in that direction. We've just finished our conversation with Francoise Malby Anthony, a larger-than-life personality in South Africa, a French import to our sunny shores, who has adopted this country and made the conservation of our wildlife her lifelong passion. Thank you so much, not just for the book and for the time that you've taken to come to our studio, but for everything that you do to conserve our country's natural heritage. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And after interviewing Francoise Malby Anthony about her book, An Elephant in My Kitchen, I decided to go for quite a strongly environmental themed show. And to look at a number of different books that talk about the environment and the challenges that the environment is under, the pressures with uh, economic growth, growing populations, need for food. And it was a perfect opportunity to talk about a book that has made quite a splash overseas and should be making a bigger splash in South Africa. The book is called The Wizard and the Prophet. It's written by Charles C. Mann. And it's a dual biography of two significant figures who had little regard for each other's work, but were largely responsible for the creation of the basic intellectual blueprints that institutions around the world use today for understanding our environmental dilemmas. It's a thick book, The Wizard and the Prophet, featuring two scientists unknown to most readers. To publish such a book and expect people to buy it is quite a tough sell. But best-selling journalist and historian Thomas C. Sorry, Charles C. Mann, whose previous books, 1493, Uncovering the New World, Columbus Created, and 1491, 
He's a correspondent for the Atlantic's for science and for Wired magazines, and he turns in his usual masterful performance. Nobel Prize-winning agronomist Norman Borlaug, who lived from 1914 to 2009, developed high-yield wheat varieties and championed agricultural techniques that led to the Green Revolution, vastly increasing world food production. Ornithologist William Vacht who lived from 1902 to 1968, studied the relationship between resources and population and wrote the 1948 bestseller Road to Survival, which is a founding document of modern environmentalism in which the author maintains that current trends will lead to overpopulation and mass hunger. Borlach, who is the wizard of the title, and Wacht, who is the prophet, represent two sides of a century-long dispute between the wizards who believe that science will allow humans to continue prospering and prophets who predict disaster unless we accept that our planet's resources are limited. Beginning with admiring biographies in the first part of the book, the author moves on to the environmental challenges the two men symbolize. Agriculture will require a second green revolution by 2050 to feed an estimated 10 billion in world world inhabitants. Only 1% of Earth's water is fresh and accessible, and three quarters of that 1% go to agriculture, and shortages around the world are already alarming. More than 1.2 billion people still lack electricity. Whether to produce more electricity or use less energy more efficiently is an issue that bitterly divides both sides. Neither denies that human activities are wrecking havoc with the Earth's climate. Mann's most spectacular, well, that's Charles Mann, the author, his most spectacular accomplishment is to take no sides in this debate. Readers will thrill to the wizard's astounding advances and believe the prophet's gloomy forecasts. And they will also discover that technological miracles produce nasty side effects and that self-sacrifice, as prophets urge, has proven contrary to human nature. So the book, The Wizard and the Prophet, two groundbreaking scientists and their conflicting visions of the future of our planet by Charles C. Mann, published by Picador, is a very timely addition to the books talking about man's place in the world and the great challenges that face us both, well, not both, but for food, for water, for energy and climate change. And it looks how these two opposing personalities, one the wizard, Norman Borlaug, and to the prophet, William Vacht, how their visions uh, can be applied to these four areas of great challenge, food, water, energy, and climate. Uh, similar in terms of genre to the books of Yuval Noah Harari, Sapiens, and Homo Deus, and also Jared Diamond's Guns, Germ and, Germs, and Steel, all very, very important works in terms of looking at man's role in the, in the world and society's development, civilization's development. This book fits firmly in that genre, and it makes for fascinating, fascinating reading in terms of where we've come from and the challenges that we face, where we're going to. Another environmental issue that is becoming more and more discussed in the media, newspapers, articles, in magazines, 
uh, and now in books is plastic. And one of the world's experts on plastic, Lucy Siegel from the UK, has just written a book called Turning the Tide on Plastic, How Humanity and You Can Make Our Globe Clean Again. And once again, anything to do with the environment becomes more and more urgent. Journalist, broadcaster and eco expert Lucy Siegel has had a weekly primetime TV slot dedicated to battling waste plastic. This is on BBC One in the UK. And a decade of experience as the Observer and Guardian's ethical living columnist. She founded Green Carpet Challenge to address consumption and sustainability in the fashion industry and recently worked on environmental projects with Emma Watson and Ellie Goulding. She's well known for enthusiasm, optimism and playful authority and her new book Turning the Tide on Plastic has just been published. It's published by Trapeze. We'll be reading a short extract straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We in the middle of an environmental awareness slot on the show. We interviewed Francoise Malby-Anthony, the author of An Elephant in My Kitchen, which is a sequel to The Elephant Whisperer. We've spoken about a book called The Wizard and the Prophet, Two Groundbreaking Scientists and Their Conflicting Visions of the Future of Our Planet by Charles C. Mann. Now we're looking at a book called Turning the Tide on Plastic, How Humanity and You Can Make Our Globe Clean Again. And that's written by Lucy Siegel and published by Trapeze. I want to read from the introduction to this book. Welcome to the plastic age. The plastic we throw away in a single year could circle the earth four times. Out of the 320 million metric tons of new plastic produced each year, almost all come almost all from oil, 8 million tons leak into the Earth's oceans and waterways. That is the equivalent of a truckload of plastic being upturned and shaken out straight into the sea every minute of every day. Every minute of every day, 1 million plastic bottles are used. Imagine each of those bottles a quarter filled with oil, so that's the amount of oil needed to make the bottle in the first place. In the last decade, We've produced more plastic than we did during the whole of the last century. And this is the one that usually stops people in their tracks. By 2050, the ocean will contain more plastic by weight than fish. Plastic has us in a vice-like grip. It has colonized supermarket shelves and kitchen bins, invaded parks, grass verges, beaches, and beauty spots. It has leaked into our oceans to impact wildlife, and muscled its way onto the, mighty, onto the nightly news. For a material that's supposed to provide background assistance to everyday life, that's quite the attention upgrade. Plastic has jostled its way into our very souls, but more alarmingly still, it has shown to be in both our food chain and our bodies. Cleaning up the unwanted plastic from all of these areas and halting its further march into the fabric of our lives starts right now. It has to. In human history, as many have observed, observed, there was the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, and today we are living through the Plastic Age. But the Plastic Age is not something we can sit by and watch passively, observing as if the inexorable plastic takes over was just another natural phase of human evolution. 
As the book will show, the impact of the plastic pandemic is so serious, it becomes a zero-sum game. Either plastic wins, or we do. One billion elephants. The last 12 months has unleashed not just another 320 million tons of virgin plastic, that's brand new plastic from newly extracted oil, but an abundance of analysis as to what that may or may not mean for our planet. Perhaps out of all the figures that have been posited, the report that really shocked the most was by the well-respected industrial ecologist and academic Professor Roland Gear, heading up a team of U.S. researchers. This was the first global analysis of all the plastic production there has ever been. It'll blow your socks off. Professor Gear's report shows that in total, humans have produced 8.3 billion tons of plastic since its industrial-scale production really got going in the 1950s. That's the weight of 1 billion elephants. By 2015, just 9% had been recycled, 12% incinerated, and 79% had accumulated in landfills or the wider environment. That means nearly all the plastic that has ever been produced is still with us. The ecological impact of our plastic production is plain to see. We're reading from the introduction to the Turning the Tide on Plastic by Lucy Siegel. Huge numbers of us are now waking up to the plastic pandemic and deciding that if governments and global agencies won't or can't move fast enough, then we are going to have to do something ourselves. But how? What is the most effective form of action we can take? In the book, Turning the Tide on Plastic, you will read a survival guide. The author wants to show us exactly how far plastic has become an unavoidable fact of modern life. And then she wants to give us the tools to tackle plastic. In the second part of the book, the book is geared to helping you reduce your plastic footprint. Described some of the author's victories, and she will outline down-to-earth ideas and strategies to devise your own plastic survival plan. Here you will find a wealth of sound, simple tips and practical how-tos that you can put to work to make a change right now. Lucy's plan is to get right between you, the reader, and your plastic dependency and consciously uncouple your life from the material. In effect, this is an, this is an enforced breakup, an intervention. We are so dependent on plastic in our lives and we use so many plastic things habitually it's incredibly rewarding to see how making small changes can yield big results every step is geared towards making sure we turn that tide the small steps outlined here might feel like a drop in the ocean but together we can and will effect a change it feels good to know that you have an army behind you doesn't it so this is the book Turning the Tide on Plastic by Lucy Siegel. She's an expert on plastic. She's had her own weekly show on BBC to tackle plastic. Here she's condensed her wisdom into one volume to help you tackle your dependency on plastic. Now, the next two books, what I decided to do is we've read the the captivating, charming, and at times scary an elephant in my kitchen 
poaching in Southern Africa from the perspective of Francoise Malby Anthony, who runs the Tula Tula Game Reserve in the KwaZulu Natal. We've looked at the long past and distant future environmental challenges that we face from the perspective of a wizard and a prophet in The Wizard and the Prophet by Charles C. Mann. We've looked at plastic. It's all been heavy nonfiction. Thought to look at environmental issues, but from the perspective of fiction, a little bit of thriller thrown in, and who better to highlight than Tony Park, the Australian-born but South African for six months of the year. He's based in Southern Africa, so he divides his time between the two continents. Author Tony Park, published by Macmillan, and his two most recent books are The Cull and Captive. We'll be giving a copy of The Cull away on this show. So all you have to do is WhatsApp us or SMS us. The WhatsApp number is 061-895-1019. The SMS number is 34519. Your name, the title of the book that you're currently reading. The Cull by Tony Park. Former mercenary Sonia Kurtz is hired by business tycoon Julianne Clyde-Smith to lead an elite squad. Their aim to take down Africa's top poaching kingpins and stop at nothing to save its endangered wildlife. But as the body count rises, it's beca- it becomes harder for Sonia to stay under the radar, and she is targeted by an underworld syndicate known as the Scorpions. When her love interest, Safari Garden, private investigator Hudson Brand, is employed to look into the death of an alleged poacher at the hands of Sonia's team, she's forced to ask herself if Julianne's crusade has gone too far. From South Africa's Kruger National Park to the Serengeti of Tanzania, Sonia realizes she is fighting a war on numerous fronts against enemies known and unknown. So who can Sonia really trust? To win a copy of The Cull by Tony Park, published by Macmillan, all you have to do is send us your name and the title of the book that you're currently reading. The WhatsApp number is 061-895-1019. The SMS number is 34519. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We've got an environmental awareness theme. And the last book in this theme is the new Tony Parks thriller. It's called Captive. And this is what the story is. A very eager and rather naive Australian lawyer, Kerry Maxwell, flies into South Africa to volunteer at a wildlife orphanage run by notorious vet Graham Bard. Graham is as jaded and reckless as Kerry is law-abiding and optimistic. When Kerry arrives at the animal sanctuary, it's to the news that Graham is imprisoned in Mozambique following a shootout with elephant poachers. In the gunfight, he killed the brother of corrupt politician and poaching kingpin, Fidel Costa. Kerry's earnest sense of justice takes her to Messinger to help Graham with his case and into a world of danger. Kidnapped, chased, attacked and betrayed, Kerry learns the bitter truth about the complexities and deadly nature of the war on poaching. Even the motivations of well-meaning charities, wealthy donors and private zoos are not all they appear. Kerry's perilous entanglement may be what Graham needs to shake off his drunken cynicism and rejoin the fight for Africa's animals. But is it enough? And in time, to stop Costa's quest for revenge. So there's Tony Park... We're taking wildlife conservation and the war on poaching out of nonfiction, and it becomes the subject of a thriller. And 
these are all the books that I've selected today for our environmental awareness theme. I've got two more books that I want to discuss, which have Jewish themes, so they are of Jewish interest. The first I received this week. So I haven't read it yet, but I have to mention it. And over the next few weeks, I'll be drip feeding you some of the stories in the book. It is a very big book. It's 631 pages before the notes. It's written by Israeli journalist Ronen Bergman. He's the award-winning senior correspondent for military and intelligence affairs for Yediot Achronot, Israel's largest daily paid newspaper, and is a staff writer for the New York Times magazine. He's the author of five best-selling Hebrew nonfiction books and the book The Secret War with Iran. He has a PhD in history from Cambridge University and he's won a, a scholarship from the British Foreign Office. The book is called Rise and Kill First, subtitled The Secret History of Israel's Targeted Assassinations. It created quite a stir when it was released in America last year, and now it's been published in the UK and South Africa. The book is the first definitive history of the Mossad, Shin Bet, and the Israel Defense Forces targeted killing program. The book includes the result of over a thousand interviews with people in the intelligence and the military establishments in Israel. The book is available. I saw it in the Kolal Bookshop earlier this week. And uh, that's all I'm going to drip feed you today. But you have to look out for it. Rise and Kill First by Ronan Bergman, published in South Africa by John Murray Publishers. And I'll be talking more about it over the coming weeks. Take me a long time to get through the whole book, so I'll be sharing some of the some of the the earth shattering stories in Israel's targeted killing campaigns on this show. And the last book is a novelization of the family, the Rothschilds family, in the early in the first half of the the twentieth century. It's, the, the book's called House of Gold. It's written by Natasha Solomons, published by Hutchinson. And the names of the family has been changed. So in this book, the gold, the Goldbaum's influence reaches across Europe. They are the confidants and bankers of governments and emperors. Little happens in Europe without their say-so and even less without their knowledge. But Greta Goldbaum has no say in, at all in who she'll marry. While power lies in wealth, strength lies in family. Greta's union with her cousin Albert will strengthen the bond between the Austrian and the English branches of the dynasty. It is sensible and strategic. Greta is neither sensible nor strategic. Defiant and unhappy, she is desperate to find a place that belongs to her, free from duty and expectation. But just as she begins to taste an unexpected happiness, war is looming and even the Goldbaums can't alter its course. For the first time in 200 years, the family find themselves on opposing sides. The House of Goldbaum, along with Europe itself, is about to break apart. This is a novelization of roughly the Rothschilds family. Rights to the House of Gold have been optioned by Tall Story Pictures, who plan to develop it as a major international television drama series adapted by the author Dave, uh, Natasha and her husband David Solomons. So that would be like a Jewish form of Downton Abbey with a focus on a financing family with branches all across the European continent. And 
I'm almost out of time just to say that in the next few weeks, we've got interviews lined up with a number of best-selling international authors. Um, John Boyne, the author of A Boy in Stripe Pajamas, will be talking to us about his re- his most recent book, uh, A Ladder to the Sky, which is just being released in South Africa right now. James Brabazon, who I interviewed a few years ago for his non-fiction book, uh, My Friend the Mercenary, will be on the show as well to discuss his first thriller, uh, The Break Line. And we also have Sebastian Fawkes booked for an interview for his latest novel, Paris Echo, and we're working very hard to get a few, you know, as many great authors on the show. And just to finish off our environmental theme, I have booked an interview with Richard Pierce for to discuss his book, Cuddle Me, Kill Me, about the canned lion hunting and um, the striking baby lion industry. He will be in South Africa shooting a documentary and he'll be in our studios beginning of October so we can bring that story to our listeners. Until next week, good Shabbos and keep reading.